In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. You might want to come up the front if you're sitting at the back because there's a bit to see today. Welcome to Let Us Attend number 9. It's our second last session. We'll finish at 10. Uh, like 10, as in number 10 next week. So we're on page 198. Last week we did the institution narrative where we um, remember what Christ did at the Last Supper. He took bread, he broke Likewise, after supper, he mixed the cup, he mixed it with wine and water, and he gave thanks, etc. Then we spoke for a while about the descent of the Holy Spirit, which, was, which is called the epiclesis, highlighting, um, if I can please, on page 196, something that we said last week, in italics in the lower third of the page. The priest says, And we ask you, O Lord our God, we your sinful and unworthy servants, worship you by the pleasure of your goodness, that your Holy Spirit may descend upon us, and upon these gifts set forth, purify them, change and manifest them the sanctification of your saints. So the priest has asked the Holy Spirit to come upon us and upon these gifts. To do what? To purify, change and manifest them as a sanctification of your saints. So we believe after this, the bread and the wine are considered to be the body and the blood of Christ. The true body and the blood of Christ. But highlighting for us, importantly now, um, especially for what we're about to say in a few minutes, that the priest asked the Holy Spirit to descend upon us as well. Okay? So, we're on page 198. So after this part, the priest says, Make us all worthy, O our Master, to partake of your hollies, hollies unto the purification of our souls, bodies, and spirits that we may become one body and one spirit and may have a share and inheritance with all the saints who have pleased at the beginning. There is a lot in those two very short paragraphs. Okay? You will see that I made you a table um, here under the heading Make Us Worthy. So I just went through the liturgy and found a few places where we can understand what the church understands by worthiness. Okay? In the prayer of preparation, the priest says, you, O Lord, know my unworthiness and unpreparedness and my lack of meetness for this, your holy service. Grant, etc. Grant to me that I might find grace and mercy at this hour, etc. And send down to me strength from on high. So the priest acknowledges that he's unworthy. So he hasn't called himself worthy. He starts by saying, I am unworthy. And he asks God to send grace and mercy at that time. After he prepares the altar, we have the preparation, the prayer after preparation. And he says... You have called us, your lowly and unworthy servants, to be servants of your holy altar. O our Master, you make us worthy in the power of your Holy Spirit. So again, he acknowledges that the servants of the altar are unworthy, but he asks God to make us worthy. How? In the power of your Holy Spirit. So, so far we could understand that we are unworthy, but God is the one who makes us worthy. The prayer of the veil, which we looked at a few weeks ago, which the priest says after the gospel, before he enters the sanctuary. It says, We ask you, O our Master, turn us not back when we put our hands on this awesome and bloodless sacrifice, for we put no trust in our righteousness, but in your mercy, whereby you have given life to our race. Emphasizing that we're not worthy, because I put no trust in my righteousness, but in your mercy. Prayer of reconciliation. The priest says, make us all worthy, O our master, to greet one another with a holy kiss. The part which we're looking at right now, the seven short litanies, he starts off, make us all worthy, O our master, to partake of your hollies. Before the fraction, 
For he has also made us worthy, now to stand in this holy place. A prayer before he gives communion, which we'll read next week. Make us worthy, without falling into condemnation, to partake of your holy body and your precious blood. So what's all that about? It's very simple. None of us are worthy to partake of the Holy Eucharist. How do we become worthy? God makes me worthy. Very simple. Okay? So... Why is this important? But some people think, oh, I'm such a bad sinner, I can't have communion. But if we look at the liturgical text, the whole liturgy emphasizes that we are all unworthy. God makes us worthy, but there are a few things that are, we have to do to be, for lack of a better word, maybe receptive of that worthiness. Okay? Three things. We need to confess that we are sinners and unworthy. So we actually need to acknowledge that we... Three or four? Three. Repent... Uh, Confess that we are sinners and unworthy. And when we say confess that we are sinners, we also mean the sacrament of confession and repentance. Of course, it's not practical to confess before every single time I have the Eucharist, but I should be living a life of repentance and confession, where repentance is something that I do all the time, and I see my confession father regularly to receive the absolution. Number two, to have faith. In everything that we're saying in the liturgy, and this is evident in the responses. How many times in the liturgy do you say, I believe? A lot. So to actually have faith that we believe in what we're saying. And number three, we need the descent of the Holy Spirit, which happens right before Abuna says, make us all worthy. Okay, which we looked at last week. Turn the page. So the different people have interpreted worthiness, especially in the Middle Ages. Some people have interpreted worthiness as true repentance and as preparation of the body and spirit. What does that mean? True repentance is obvious. Living a life of repentance. What does repentance mean? It means a change of heart, which means if I'm walking this way towards sin, I stop, I realize what I'm doing, I regret it, So, which makes me turn around and return to God. That's repentance. It's something that me and you should be doing our whole life. It's not something that I sit down to do. It's a way of life that I do. But I see a buna for confession. So that's repentance. Preparation of the body and spirit, or let's focus on the body for now. The church has put that we fast midnight or nine hours, whichever is greater, before communion. Now, we didn't always used to fast before communion historically, but the church included it because to encourage us to actually prepare ourselves, prepare our minds, our bodies for approaching the sacrament. So when we say nine hours or midnight, we're not only saying from food, we're just saying from everything. Just have some time where you do nothing, some reflection time. We usually were asleep, so it's okay, before we approach communion. So it's midnight or nine hours, whatever is greater. So if the liturgy is an early liturgy from five to seven, and you fast from midnight, that's only seven hours, so you start at ten. But if the liturgy is at three in the afternoon, you fast from midnight. So, for example, it's Jonah's fast now. A lot of churches have liturgies that finish at 3 p.m., so you fast from midnight until 3 p.m. Why do we have liturgies that finish at 3 p.m. in the fast? So that we could fast with abstinence and not break our fast until 3 p.m. But that's a different topic. There's a 14th century author, couldn't find his name in the text that I was reading, which he says the meaning of worthiness is four things. True faith in the body and the blood of Christ, love and peace with all, which we spoke about in the prayer of reconciliation, greet one another with a holy kiss as a condition to approaching the Eucharist, baptism, repentance and confession. Okay? So from all of that, we could really see that it is God who makes us worthy. You can't do anything to make yourself worthy. What you could do is you could be prepared for the liturgy, but you can't make yourself worthy. That's impossible. Okay? 
Father Gregorius from our theological college said some very nice things about preparation. He goes, we must go to the altar with faith and preparation and partake of the Eucharist. Whoever says to you, do not go to the altar because you are a sinner is like one who says to you, do not go to the doctor because you are ill, says one of the fathers of the Coptic Church. Whoever says, I do not want the Eucharist with no reason, sorry, with the reason that he is a sinner and not worthy, it is like one who is ill, who does not want to take the medicine till they receive healing. It doesn't make sense. This is the sin of pride. Why is it pride? You might think it's humility. Why is it pride to think I'm not going to approach communion because I'm not worthy? It's pride because the person thinks that on their own effort, they could be worthy. So that's pride. That's relying on me. Okay? So some people think it's humble to say, I'm not going to have communion because I'm a sinner. No, that's pride because that means that I'm relying on my own efforts to be worthy. And that's not true. This is the sin of pride which makes one not seek healing as he may think that he can give himself the healing. The Eucharist is our healing. Therefore, we must not distance ourselves from the altar, but we must not approach without respect and physical and spiritual preparation. So yes, sure, God makes me worthy, but I'm not going to approach in a careless manner. If the church has prescribed for me that I shouldn't have communion if I have not fasted before, then I don't have communion. Out of respect to the rules of the church for physical and spiritual preparation. As the fathers were opposed to false piety, they were also opposed to recklessness. Preparation comes from us, worthiness comes from the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's very clear. How do I become worthy? God makes me worthy. What do I do? I just have to be prepared. Practically, what does that mean? The night before the liturgy, I should be doing things a bit different. So, for example, of course, I'm fasting from food, but I should maybe be reflecting what's going on, spend some more time in prayer, maybe even read the readings of the next day. That's a really good habit that a lot of people do. All of us have Coptic reader on our phone. We could easily pick... Uh, click the app and find what the readings are for the liturgy the next day as a form of preparation. But being out at night or doing things that are too much noise in my head the night before the liturgy is not really conducive to waking up and having some nice quiet time entering into the liturgy. Something very important is when we wake up for the liturgy, we shouldn't do anything in between waking up and going to the liturgy. Okay? As much as practical, if you've got a 3 p.m. liturgy and you're at work, you can't, of course you can't do anything there. But on Sunday, for example, we should really avoid going on our phone or going on Facebook or reading the news or doing any of that, listen to the radio, because we want to be fasting from all of that. So the first thing that comes in my ear are the beautiful readings of the church and the hymns. The first thing that my eye see is the glorious t church, the icons, the vestments, etc. And the first thing that touches my lips is the Eucharist. St. John Chrysostom says something nice. I could give you the whole sermon. I think the context of the sermon is that there was a saint feast day and not many people came. So the next time they came, he gave him some nice words. And he said to them things like, um, you go to the theatre or to the horse races and they have to kick you out because you're hanging around there too much. But when you come to church, you're just taking your time. Okay? Or for example, it's raining and it's showering rain and you still go to the theatre and the horse races. But a little puddle on the road, you're like, I can't go to church. Or I, um, if I asked you who Amos is or Obadiah or one of the prophets, your ears get heavy. But you could talk about the charioteers and the people in the theatre with much eloquence. Things actually apply to us today. Okay? But I won't go into that. It's a very interesting sermon. I'll give it to you later. But he says some nice things relevant to our topic today. He says, St. John Chrysostom, But you will say to me, I am a sinner, I cannot come. 
then if you are a sinner, come, that you may cease to be one. Very logical. Okay? Tell me, who is there among men without sin? Do you not know that even those close to the altar are wrapped in sins? For they are clothed with flesh, enfolded in a body, as we also who are sitting and teaching upon this throne are entangled in sin. So upon this throne is because he was the bishop and patriarch of Constantinople. So as bishop is saying, I am sitting upon this throne, I am entangled in sin. He continues, But not because of this do we despair of the kindness of God, and neither do we look on him as inhuman. And for this reason has the Lord disposed that those who serve the altar shall also be subject to these afflictions, so that from what they too suffer they may learn to have a fellow feeling for others. In other words, the people serving around the altar know exactly how you feel because they're also sinners. Okay? So a quote from, from John Cashin. I'll leave you to read it later because of time. A quote from Theophan the Recluse, a Russian bishop, which I'll also leave you to read later because of time. But I'll read the quote of St. Cyril of Jerusalem. If the poison of pride is swelling up in you, turn to the Eucharist. And that bread, which is your God humbling and disguising himself, will teach you humility. So when he says that bread, he is not saying that this is merely bread. This is the true body and the true blood of Christ, but when you look at it, it looks like bread. If the fever of selfish greed rages in you, feed on this bread, and you will learn generosity. If the cold wind of coveting withers you, hasten to the bread of angels, and charity will come to blossom in your heart. If you feel the itch of intemperance, nourish yourself with the flesh and blood of Christ, who practiced heroic self-control during his earthly life, and you will become temperate. If you are lazy and sluggish about spiritual things, strengthen yourself with this heavenly food, and you will grow fervent. Lastly, if you feel scorched by the fever of impurity, go to the banquet of the angels and the spotless flesh of Christ will make you pure and chaste. Okay? Shows that the Eucharist is, like we looked at one of the quotes before, the medicine of immortality. So we are all unworthy to approach the Eucharist. Okay? We will never be worthy to approach the Eucharist because God is the one who makes me worthy. My role is to be prepared. Okay? But sometimes you might have something going on in your life and you're like, I don't really know if I should actually approach communion. If you're ever confused, you've got your confession father, you give him a call or you make an appointment to see him and you ask him. But never take it upon yourself to decide not to go to communion unless they're the very easy, simple things, such as I haven't fasted before communion or my confession father told me not to take communion for these certain reasons. But never leave it to yourself because you'll generally be too harsh on yourself. So that's the phrase, make us all worthy. O our Master, to partake of your hollies, unto the purification of our souls, bodies, and spirits. So we learn something from, the, from there about the Eucharist. The Eucharist purifies my soul, body, and spirit. Then this is nice. That we may become one body, one spirit. Why? Because we are partaking of the one body and blood of Christ. Okay? Now what's that called? Any guesses? Canonia. Okay? That's called canonia, literally meaning communion. Now, remember we said the church must be viewed through the eyes of Kononia. Okay, that's the word of the series, okay, Kononia. That we may become one body and one spirit, and this is beautiful, and may have a share and inheritance with all the saints who have pleased you since the beginning. What does it, what's that about? When we partake of the Eucharist, we are one church. Not only one church with the people who are alive, but one church with those in heaven as well. We don't look at two churches, church here and church up there. No, it's one church. Sometimes we refer to it as 
earth, we are the people in the church, the militant church and the victorious church, but we're still one church. So this is beautiful. It's very deep. It's saying, make us so worthy, our master, to partake of these holies so that we can become purified in body, soul, and spirit. And that way we may be all become one body and one spirit and that we share, have a share and inheritance with the whole church, all the saints who have pleased us since the beginning. Now see how the theme is the church? So what's the next thing that the priest prays about? The church. Remember, Lord, the peace of your one only holy Catholic apostolic church. Beautiful connection there. They're not just placed there randomly. Okay? If we could just turn to the first page. St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Just so you know, that this order of the liturgy is very old. Remember St. Cyril's 4th century. So these two paragraphs are what follow from what we did last week. And you could see that what he's describing is what we still do today. Here he says, Next, when the spiritual sacrifice, the bloodless worship, has been completed, over this sacrifice of propitiation, we beseech God for the common peace of the churches, for the good estate of the world, for the emperors, for the army and allies, for those in sickness, for the distressed, for all, in a word, who need help, we all pray and offer this sacrifice. So these are the litanies that we're just about to read now. Okay? Next, we call to mind all those who have fallen asleep. First of all, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, commemoration of the saints, that God, through their intercessory prayers, may accept our supplication. Next, we pray also for the holy fathers and bishops who have fallen asleep, and generally for all who have fallen asleep before us, believing that this will be of the greatest benefit to the souls of those on whose behalf our supplication is offered in the presence of the holy, most dread sacrifices. Okay? So very early witness from how this order of the liturgy is pretty old. Descent to the Holy Spirit, then we pray for a lot of things, and this is the litany. Okay? I won't read Father Alexander Schmemann's part. I'll leave you to read that uh, later. But what we will do is we'll read the litanies together. Okay, so we are on page 199. So it says, remember, Lord, the peace of your one only holy Catholic apostolic church. The deacon then says what? Pray for the peace of the one only holy Catholic apostolic church. Now, in letters to 10 number 2, we looked at what we mean by one only holy Catholic and apostolic church. So we won't look at that now. Okay, but when the deacon asks us to pray for the church, what are we supposed to do? Pray for the church. So what's our job in the liturgy? To pray. Simple. Okay? Then the people respond, Lord, have mercy. Then the priest says, this, referring to the church, this, which you have acquired to yourself with the precious blood, point to the blood of your Christ, point to the body, keep her, the church, in peace with all the Orthodox bishops that are in her. So it all flows into one big paragraph. Remember... Foremost, remember our Lord, our blessed and Father, the Archbishop, our Patriarch, Ava Tuadros II, and his partner in the Apostolic Liturgy, our Father, the Bishop, Ava Suriel. For instance, if there's a Metropolitan, you say our Father, the Metropolitan, so-and-so. If there is more than one Bishop, you mention both. Okay? Then the deacon says, the response, pray, etc. All right? Next litany, page 201. Then he says, the priest, and those who rightly handle the word of truth with him. Remember we said that one of the bishop's roles is to handle or define the word of truth. That's taken from the writings of St. Paul. What does that mean? We look at the bishop as our source of defining or interpreting the faith, looking at scripture and telling us what it means. And it's the bishop's job to preserve the 
canonia of the church, okay? So if any heresy comes, it's a bishop's job to define the word of truth and to say, hold on, this is heresy. Please correct your ways. And if that person doesn't correct their ways like Arius, you say you're leaving us no choice but to exclude you from the canonia of the church or you've actually excluded yourself. So it goes, and those who rightly handle the word of truth with him, in other words, the priests, grant them unto your holy church to shepherd your flock in peace. Remember, our Lord, the orthodox sigamans, priests, and deacons. So it all flows together. Pray for the church, the bishops, the priests, higamins, deacons. Then the deacon asks you to pray for the higamins, the priests, the deacons, subdeacons, seven orders of the church of God. Next page, 202. And then the priest prays for all the servants and all who are in virginity and the purity of all your faithful people. Remember, O Lord, to have mercy upon us all. And then we reply, have mercy upon us, O God, the Father, the Pantocrator. Then the priest says, remember, O Lord, the salvation, referring to the safety, of this holy place and every place and every monastery of our Orthodox fathers. And then the usual response, pray for the salvation of the world and of the city of ours and of all cities, countries, islands and monasteries. Okay? Now, in the liturgy of St. Gregory, there's a lot more litanies. You pray for the king, the emperor, the troops. It's actually a response there, pray for the troops. Okay? Pray for a lot of things. Okay? Then, top of 203. And those who dwell therein in God's faith. Dwell where? What are you referring to? All the things that you listed before. The city of ours, countries, islands, and monasteries. And those who dwell in, therein in God's faith. So continue the sentence. Remember, O Lord, the salvation of this, your holy place, and every place and every monastery of our Orthodox fathers and those who dwell therein in God's faith. Okay, so if you read it as one, he's praying for the place and the people in it. And then in this liturgy book, it gets a little bit confusing, but let me explain. He says, it says here, the priest says the appropriate prayer according to the season. So what's the season? These are seasons based in Egypt. Okay, so for example, there's a season where you pray for the water, a season where you pray for the fruits, um, and a season where you pray for the seeds. Because we're in Australia or outside of Egypt, the Synod has combined all these three prayers into one prayer, which you can find on page 205. So the priest combines them together. He says, Graciously I called, O Lord, to bless the air of heaven, the fruits of the earth, the waters of the river, the seeds, herbs, and the plants of the field this year. So we're praying for everything. The church, the bishop, the people there, the salvation, the safety of the place, and for the crops, the air, the water, etc. Then he says a long, a long prayer on page 206. It's actually very nice, very beautiful prayer. Raise them to their measure according to your grace. He's talking about what he was just praying about the waters, etc. Give joy to the face of the earth. May its furrows be abundantly watered and its fruits be plentiful. Prepare it for sowing and harvesting. Manage our life as deemed fit. Bless the crown of the year with your goodness for the sake of the poor of your people, the widow, the orphan, the traveler, the stranger, and for the sake of all of us who entreat you and seek your holy name. For the eyes of everyone wait upon you, for you give them the food in due season. Emphasizing that we rely upon God. Deal with us according to your goodness, O you who give food to all flesh. Fill our hearts with joy and gladness, that we too, having sufficiency in everything always, may abound in every good deed. A beautiful prayer. Next page, 208. The last litany, he, he prays for the gifts and those who have brought them. And we say this prayer, remember, in the offertory. Okay? 
Remember, O Lord, those who have brought unto you these gifts, those on whose behalf they have been brought, and those by whom they have been brought. Give them all the heavenly reward. Okay? Then we enter into the commemoration of the saints. As this, O Lord, is the command of your only begotten Son, that we share in the commemoration of your saints, etc. Now, apparently, the commemoration of the saints used to only be two saints, St. Mary and St. John the Baptist. Okay? But later, different saints were added. And there's one opinion out there that the current commemoration of the saints comes from a monastery. Hence, the majority of the saints are monks. There's no, you don't hear St. George, St. Mina, etc. Okay? You don't, hear, you don't see women in the commemoration of the saints. A lot of people say this probably came from a monastery. But if you look at the midnight praises, the longer commemoration, it has everyone. Martyrs, female saints, patriarchs, bishops, a lot of people. But in the liturgy, the version that we have in St. Basil, most likely came from a monastery. St. Gregory's liturgy has a few extra saints. St. Cyril's liturgy is a bit shorter. Okay? These are flexible things. Okay? Then we go up to page 212. So I won't go through the whole commemoration of the saints. But the deacon says, Let those who read recite the names of our holy fathers, the patriarchs who have fallen asleep. O Lord, repose their souls and forgive us our sins. So at that time, as it says here, in, in previous times, sorry, those who read are the readers, the Ognostos. They would read the names of all the patriarchs that have fallen asleep. So they have a list of patriarchs, like... St. Mark, St. Inyanos, etc., St. Athanasius, St. Cyril, St. Discorus, and they would read all of them. These days, on the altar, we have a, a paper of the names of the patriarchs, and the deacon reads it silently. So it's a practice that has sort of not carried through, but that's okay. And then the priest prays for those who have passed away. That's why at this part, you have the priest may be commemorating by name someone who has been asked to commemorate who, who passed away. So it could be the 40th day commemoration, a relative could have just passed away, it could have been someone that you know who's passed away, you might give his or her name to Abuna in the altar, and Abuna will say it out loud. Let's read the prayer before we spend some time looking at why we pray for those who have departed. Because that's an interesting thing. 2.12, the priest says the following commemoration of the departed inaudibly, silently. Remember also, O Lord, all those who have fallen asleep and repose in the priesthood and in all the orders of the laity. Graciously, O Lord, repose all their souls in the bosom of our holy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sustain them in green pastures, besides still waters in the paradise of joy, the place out of which grief, sorrow, and groaning have fled away in the light of your saints. This is taken from the litany of the departed, which we say in Vespers, and the priest then puts incense into the censer. At the bottom of two-thirds... Uh, sorry... Okay, actually, let's look at this. I wasn't planning to, but let's do it. If the patriarch, metropolitan or bishop of the place, had passed away, they say a special prayer. Let's read. Remember, O Lord, the soul of our father, the patriarch, for instance, Ava Shenouda. Usually said between when the Pope passes away and when they choose a new patriarch. And then what, what does he say at the end? Graciously repose it with your saints. Grant to appoint for us a good shepherd to shepherd your people in purity and righteousness. Okay. And then, if we, there's a couple of hymns that could be said, but for time we'll go to page 218. And the people sing the hymn, May their holy blessings be with us, Amen. 
Glory to you, O Lord. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, bless us. Lord, repose them. Amen. Now, let's spend some time looking at why we pray for those who have departed. So we are on the page which has the heading... Father Tadros Malati in the middle, okay. So find that page, please. Okay, let's read together. The Eucharist is the mystery of the whole Ecclesia, the whole church. It is the coming of the whole redeemed Catholic Church. Catholic means united, universal church, not Catholic as in Roman Catholic. Catholic Church to the Father in Jesus Christ as his holy body by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a divine action done on behalf of the whole church, not only on behalf of those present at the moment of the celebration. So not only for those in church at the time, but for the whole church. It is a divine mystery of the one church, that is, of the triumphant and militant members. Militant members are us who are still struggling on earth. Triumphant members are those in heaven who have made it. Or in paradise, sorry. For the triumphant ones who departed from earth, this is nice, did not leave the church. They're still in the church. Their love to their brethren who are militant did not cease by their departure and dwelling in paradise. The death of bodies never separates the faithful from the church, nor does it sever the bond of mutual love. The community which as Christians we belong to is not limited only to the world we see around us. It extends across time as well as space, embracing the departed ones along with the living. In God and in his church, there can be no division between the living and the dead, for both are one in the love of the Father. Christians, whether they are alive or not, as members of God's church, still belong to one and the same family. They are still members belonging to each other and are called to bear each other's burdens. The church, a reality, both visible and invisible, encompasses within herself earth and heaven, the living, the departed and saints, men and angels, joining them all in one body. Okay? He continues to say that St. Macarius the Great says, there is no other way to be saved except through our neighbor. We cannot practice our salvation outside the other members of the church. We cannot cease from praying for others, for we love them and are one with them. We pray for others while they are alive. Why should we not continue to pray for them after their death? Is it because that they cease to exist that we should cease to pray for them? Perhaps we do not know precisely how much these prayers are useful for the dead, but we still go praying for the loving mercy of God to be upon them. That's nice. Turn the page, please. A quote from a priest from Russia known as John of Konstant. When you pray for the repose of the soul of the departed, force yourself to pray with your whole heart, remembering that to do so is your essential duty, and not only that of a priest or an ecclesiastical person like a bishop. Our prayer of faith and love for the departed means much in the Lord's sight. Pray to the Lord for the repose of the souls of your departed forefathers, fathers and brothers, daily, in the morning and in the evening, in order that the remembrance of death may live in you and the hope of the future life after death may not be extinguished in you and that your spirit may be daily humbled by the thought of the transience of your life. So he's saying two things or from these two quotes, we pray for those in heaven because we are one church. And the same way we pray for each other, we pray for them. The second thing is also to remind us that one day we are going to leave this earth. I'll leave you to read Father Athanasius Iskander's pray, um, 
uh, quote later. I'll leave you to read St. Cyril of Jerusalem's quote later. But I want to read together a nice explanation by uh, Metropolitan Callista Swear. Okay? And then, once we finish that, we'll, we'll look at the fraction. He says, The fellowship between us and them, the living and the dead, is not on the psychic, but on the spiritual level. And the place of our meeting is not in the seance parlour, but the Eucharistic table. The only legitimate foundation for our fellowship with the dead is communion in prayer. So we don't believe in getting in touch with the dark side, oh, dark side, that sounds like a movie, <laughs> with, with, the, uh, with the spirits and all that. We don't believe in any of that. Okay? Like a science parlor is where they try to do some, like get in contact with those who have died. And when you go and someone goes, oh, um, do you have a, a departed great-grandmother? She's telling you this. Those sort of places, like see on TV. Okay? The only legitimate foundation for our fellowship with the dead is communion in prayer, above all, at the celebration of the divine liturgy. We pray for them. And at the same time, we are confident that they are praying for us. And it is through this mutual intercession that we and they are joined across the boundary of death in a firm and unbroken bond of unity. We pray for the dead because we love them. That's a good enough reason. Because we love them, we pray for them. Simple. Then he quotes an Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury. His name is William Temple. William Temple calls such prayer the ministry of love, and he states in words that any Orthodox Christian would be happy to make his own. He says, We do not pray for them because God will otherwise neglect them, we pray for them because we know that he loves and cares for them. And we claim the privilege of uniting our love for them with God's. God loves them, so do we. How do we show that? We'll pray for them. No further explanation or defense of prayer for the departed is necessary or indeed possible. Such prayer is simply the spontaneous expression of our love for each other. Here on earth, we pray for others. Should we not continue to pray for them after their death? Have they ceased to exist, that we should cease to make intercession for them? Whether alive or dead, we are all members of the same family. And so, whether alive or dead, we intercede for each other. In the risen Christ, there is no separation between the dead and the living. In Father Macari's words, and I don't know who he's referring to when he says Father Macari, we are all alive in him, for in him there is no death. Physical death cannot sever the bonds of mutual love and mutual prayer that unite us all to one another in single body. Of course, he says, we do not understand exactly how such prayer benefits the departed. Yet equally, when we intercede for people still alive, we cannot explain how this intercession assists them. We know from our personal experience that praying for others is effective, and so we continue to practice it. But whether offered for the living or for the dead, such prayer works in a way that remains mysterious. We are unable to fathom the precise interaction between the act of prayer the free will of the other person, and God's grace and foreknowledge. The same like on earth. When you pray for someone, we can't understand, in our limited mind, the interaction between praying for someone, their free will, and God's grace in their life. When we pray for the departed, it is enough for us to know that they are still growing in their love for God and so need our support. Let us leave the rest to God. I like that answer personally. Why do we pray for the dead? Because we're one church and we love them. How does it help? We can't be 100% sure. The same way when we pray for each other, we don't really know the mechanism of how things work, but we pray. So that's praying for the dead. So page 218. 
In a beautiful tune in Coptic, which I highly recommend that you hear if you get a chance, maybe on tazbeha.org they've got a liturgy. They have a liturgy in full Coptic. It's, beautiful. Um, it's a beautiful tune. The priest says, Those are the Lord whose souls you have taken. Repose them, or give them rest, in the paradise of joy, in the region of the living forever, in the heavenly Jerusalem, in that place. And we too who are sojourners in this place, keep us in your faith and grant us your peace to the end. The word sojourners literally means we are just travelers here. We're not staying here for a long time. So it's like the priest is trying to say, those people that we just prayed for who passed away, one day you're going to be one of them. So don't get too comfortable. Okay, you're just traveling through earth. You're on transit. Don't get too comfortable. When you go overseas and you go through customs, you don't build your whole life around transit. Okay, that's what he's trying to say. Then we say, as it was, so shall it be from generation to generation and forevermore. Amen. What does this mean? We'll just go back to the last paragraph of the quote by Abuna Tadrus Malati. Father Tadros says, The congregation offers a hymn saying, As it was and it is, and so it shall be from generation to generation, and unto the age of ages, amen. They, the congregation, participate with the 24 heavenly priests in their hymn saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, who are and was and are to come. This is from the book of Revelations. Because you have taken to you your great power and have reigned, and participate with the four living creatures in their hymn, namely, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we are just echoing what's happening in heaven because where are we in the liturgy? Literally in heaven. Okay? Page 219 still. The priest then says, after he's acknowledged that we are in transit on the way somewhere, he says, lead us throughout the way into your kingdom. So God, we've acknowledged we're in transit. Could you please lead us throughout the way into your kingdom? That as in this, so also in all things, your great and holy name may be glorified, blessed and exalted in everything, honored and blessed with Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glorification of the Holy Trinity. If you're still using your own literature book, put a triangle there. Okay? Then something interesting happens. Remember, you have a side-on view of the ta altar table. Remember, these aren't consecrated. Okay? So they're okay. These are, the only th this is only consecrated, but these aren't consecrated, remember? Okay? So the priest says, Blessed with Jesus Christ, your beloved Son and the Holy Spirit. Then he says, Peace be with you all. And he doesn't do this. What does he do? Do you remember? He steps aside. Why? Christ is present on the altar. The priest cannot bless while Christ is present on the altar. Do you know, for example, if a bishop's there, a buona can't bless. So if you realize whenever there's a bishop, the bishop says, Peace be with you all. Because in the presence of a bishop... The priest can't bless. Okay? In the presence of Christ, the priest can't bless. Even if the Pope was praying the liturgy, when he says, peace be with you all, he steps aside and he bows, and everyone in response should lower their heads. Even though there's no instructions, I think it's nice just to lower our heads in reverence. Then we get to what's called the, pref the preface of the fraction. Okay? The priest says, again, let us give thanks to God, the Pantocrator, the Father of our Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So remember we said last week, we have the Lord be with you all and with your spirit, lift up your heart. So with the Lord, let us give thanks to the Lord. It is right and worthy. Saying, okay, Abuna, give thanks. And then he thanks for what? Heaven, earth, creation, salvation, the Eucharist, all the litanies that we just looked at, the church, the bishops, the people, the heir of the heavens. 
the saints, those who are departed, and then he finishes off the thanksgiving by saying, again let us give thanks. Okay? For he also has made us worthy, again, who has made us worthy? God. To do what? To stand in this holy place, to lift up our hands and to serve his holy name. Let us also ask him to make us worthy of the communion and partaking of his divine and immortal mysteries. So again, emphasizing you are not worthy, you are made worthy. And what do we know about the Eucharist? It's divine and immortal. Okay, we have the Eucharist, we live forever. Then what happens? So I'll get you, if you can't see, you might want to come and see, because we're going to do the fraction now, and it's like it's hard to sort of do it standing um, like, up, like this, but we'll see how we go. The people say, Amen. Then the priest says, the holy body, okay? He takes the body in his hands, okay? And you respond, we worship your holy body. And then as the priest says, and the precious blood, he dips his index finger into the blood, okay? Lifts his index finger slightly, crosses the blood with his index finger, which has the blood on it. So he's not crossing the blood with his bare hands, because he can't. Christ is here. What's he crossing the blood with? The blood. Okay, so Christ is blessing, not the priest. So he goes, the holy body, okay, and the precious blood, dips his finger, elevated above the blood, crosses, and then he says, of his Christ, the Pantocrator, places his finger on the body, and with his finger, which has the blood on it, he crosses the body. So remember, his hands aren't blessing the body, but the blood, sorry, not blessing, I shouldn't say that, crossing the body, the blood is crossing the body. And how does he do it? In this fashion. He goes like so, in the shape of a cross. Okay? Now, you wouldn't see it because usually it's up the front, only the deacon serving the sanctuary would see it, okay? And then, amen, um, amen, let us pray, the deacon says, Lord have mercy, he then says, peace be with you all, and with your spirit. Then he starts the fraction. Okay? Now, there's different, we're going to stop today at the fraction, Okay? There's different fraction praise that could be said. There's an annual one, there's a short one, there's one for Lent, there's one for Epiphany, there's one for the fast and the feast of the Virgin Mary, etc. And then there's other ones that could be used throughout the year. So the priest chooses one that he wants to pray or the one of the season. Of course, if it's a season, he has to pick that one. If it's not, he, like we're in Jonah's fast, so we do the one of Lent. And then he starts the fraction. So like we looked at last week, what does the oblation look like so far? Last week we said when the priest says he broke it, he breaks a third, the top and the bottom. So you get a cross. He's never going to break the spadicorn or the part which we call the masterly part or the lordly part, okay? He's never going to break that, okay? So you get a cross. At this point, he's, he's done this, okay? Now, how do I show you the fraction? Maybe if, Dave, could you come and, remember this is not consecrated, okay? But maybe, don't take a photo, maybe someone might think it's consecrated and make a, a big deal out of it, so... <laughs> Okay, this is not consecrated. Okay, so draw it like an angular view. Okay, so as he's saying the fraction, how does he divide the body? Okay, the first thing that he does is he breaks a third. Okay, puts it like so, takes the top section and places it here, the bottom section and places it there. Okay, then if you realize there's one, two, three, four crosses, remember there's 12 of these to represent the 12 disciples. Okay, he breaks one part with one of the crosses and places it here and then places the other side here. So you get what looks like a cross. Okay? Then he carefully 
breaks the middle. Okay? So why is he doing kefir? Because it's the body of Christ. He should treat it with respect. And also he doesn't want any of the jewels, we refer to the little parts as jewels, falling on the, the veil. Okay? As much as he can. He places it in the middle. Okay? Then this part, he, at each cross, but not going through the cross, he breaks without separating. Okay? And then he places it in its spot. Then he does the same here. So on this side you have four. We have one here. And now if I go one, two, three, so I have four on that side. Okay? Then he gets the middle section, carefully separates the spaticorn, okay? Kisses it, puts it in the pattern. Now it says, thank you, the rubrics say, if the priest is skilled, he can put the pieces together and lift it three times and it will stay intact. So one, two, three, then he creases his hands, okay? That's what's called as the long fraction. Now, what's the, the next logical question is? Why? why? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have an answer. There are contemplations on it. Okay? But I couldn't find a defined answer. But what I, I did some digging, what I found is there's the fraction at the... Like, fraction is to break, to make something into, into parts. There's... We, we do the first part when he say he broke. We do the second part in this highly symbolic or ritualistic fraction. And then the third is when the priest breaks up into tiny pieces to commune the people, okay? There were some contemplations that I found, okay? But nothing that solidly explains why we do it this way, okay? Some people say um, we put one part here and then the rest could represent Judas. But when you look at it, so this is, I'm not saying I found this somewhere, I'm just thinking out loud and saying maybe... This could be something. How many pieces do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. What is the church? The body of Christ. The church is made up or headed by the twelve disciples. Maybe. I don't know. Okay? <laughs> I honestly looked, I couldn't find anything that explains exactly why it is the way that it is, okay? Yeah, so there's, there is a contemplation about it that uh, is, is out there, okay? Which is um, Christ, so whenever we move from the left to the right, Christ took us from the left to the right, etc. Yes, that, is, that does exist. Um, I've tried to avoid overly contemplative explanations in the whole series, so I probably won't introduce it now. So let's just say the priest breaks or separates the, the body now in anticipation for communion. Sorry. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that next week. So Sam is asking a great question. Later on, and we'll look at this next week, the priest gets the spadicorn, dips it in the blood, and then touches the remainder of the body with the spadicorn dipped in the blood, and then he leaves. We'll talk about that next week when we look at the spadicorn and um, the, when the priest says the holy is for the holy. Um, sorry, one of the, in the spirit of some competition. Yes. <laughs> um, it says, find out why the spadicorn is called the spadicorn. 
Yeah, it's called, the, it's called despoticon. Despoticon. Despota means master. So it's like the masterly piece, the Lord piece. Like in the, on the stamp of the Urbana, this part represents Jesus Christ. What we, what we don't want to say is this is Jesus Christ, this is not the body of Christ. It's all the body of Christ. But on the stamp, this represents Christ. What, what part means master? It, you know, in, in the book, it's despoticon. I think despota means master. Or Lord. No, 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 Kyrios is Lord. I think despota means master. I'm not the best at Greek, but maybe I could ask someone who could, who could find out. But this is the fraction. Now, there's two fractions. This is 99% of the one that is done. The second one, which is called the Ashura fraction, you get the same division, but the priest never actually separates any part apart from the despoticon. Okay? So that's the fraction, and as the priest is completing the fraction, he is praying the prayer of that fraction that day, and the people respond by, Lord have mercy three times, and at the end we say, Our Father. Okay? Let's stop there. For about 50 minutes, it's okay. We'll stop there. So today, what did we speak about? We looked at worthiness. We said that God is the only one who makes us worthy. We are never worthy on our own efforts, but what we should do is we should prepare. Okay? We spoke about preparation before, as in one form of preparation is actually attending the liturgy from the beginning and hearing the readings. We looked at the litanies, we looked at why we pray for the departed, and then we looked at the fraction. Okay? Next week, we'll look at what happens from our Father onwards, okay? and communion, and then that's it. We finished. Okay? An answer? No, I want to just... Uh, like. Basically, like at the start, you were saying that the Eucharist is, uh, you know, it's through God that makes us worthy, and it's, like you're saying, it's, um, it's, it's like a doctor, you know, it's like the, the medicine for those that are sick. Um, I'm assuming I, you know, I could be wrong that when a, when a sinner goes to the, the priest, obviously because he's, you know, he's, he's committed a sin, and the priest asks him to abstain, or him or her to abstain from, um, from going, you know, having communion. I just, I'm just thinking, you know, given that what we discussed today, wouldn't it make sense for the priest actually encourage that person to make yeah. communion more? Yeah, that's a good question. So Dave's pretty much asking, asking, why would the church refrain someone from communion if we look at communion as healing? That's a great question. The church is very, from what I understand, the church uses that with much caution. It doesn't just stop people from having communion every day. Okay? But let's brainstorm possible reasons. For example... We say that you need to approach communion with repentance, which means there's two types of people who sin. There's one who struggles with sin, so they don't want to sin, but they fall and they keep struggling. They want medicine. Then there's someone who's sinning and has no intention of stopping his sin or her sin. So they're not really looking at this as medicine. So, they're not, so maybe the priest would say, okay, maybe hold off for that. Or maybe if the priest feels that someone is care, recklessly approaching the, the Eucharist. It's sort of like a case-by-case. But we do say the church is a hospital, Christ is the physician, and the Eucharist is the medicine. Okay? So next week is our last one. Let us attend uh, number 10, which will go through our Father, the holies are for the holy, the private prayers that the priest prays during that time. There's a lot of private prayers. And then the prayer um, right before he gives communion, and then the prayer at the end of the liturgy, you know, when Abuna grabs the pattern and he puts it up, after he's washed the vessels, he's saying a prayer, and then he dismissed the congregation. We'll go through all of that next week. Okay? Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.
but then we could have some more bond.